0: If you're listening to the podcast, you can see in the link that there is a PDF of the handout for tonight's session on creation part one as part of uh, our course seminar on systematic theology. So uh, feel free to grab that link and download that PDF so you can follow along if you'd like. Um, so, yeah, let's let's pray as we begin. Father God, thank you Um Thank you for being the creator. Thank you for bringing us into existence that we might enter in to relationship with you. You are the maker of the heavens and the earth, and we love you. Father, thank you for sending your son into this world to atone for our sin and to give us life and to make us a part of Your family, sons and daughters, that will one day enter a new kingdom, a new creation, that will be set free from the bondage of sin. Uh, there, there is great hope to be found in the very beginning of the story, and would You help us to see that over what is probably the next couple of weeks. Thanks for these uh, friends that are here tonight, and. Um, Father, use this lesson, this session uh, in each of our lives to increase our knowledge of and love for you. And we ask this in the mighty name of your Son and our King Jesus. Amen. So by way of reminder, for those of you who have been here before, and I think you've all been here before when I look around, um, please feel free to interrupt at any time and throw up a hand if you've got a question or something isn't clear. Uh, I want this to be... Participatory um, and uh, so that it can serve you best. Um, My intent this week is, um, as you can see from the handout, to introduce uh, the idea of God creating the heavens and the earth and to draw some principles from that. And next week, uh, so this week I won't be tackling what are the different views on the creation event. That's going to be Next week, so maybe I've already disappointed you in the very beginning of the class. Um, but well, next week is when is when we'll get into uh, the details of that, and we can all, you know, maybe present our arguments in a very ironic way. So, the doctrine of creation: Where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there a creator? Why did he create? What is his relationship with his creation? These basic questions have intrigued, maybe some would say boggled the minds of men and women for millennia. These are not just challenging questions, but usually significant questions. Um, My son and I, now sometimes I I share um, that I've watched a particular movie that doesn't mean that I'm recommending you watch this particular movie. We all have our personal tastes and what we feel that we're able to handle or not handle. The other thing I should say uh, is that um, we have this service called, have you, have you all heard of VidAngel or mm-hmm. another service called ClearPlay? You heard of these? So for nine ninety five a month, we have VidAngel. And there is, I think, 329, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, like editing, uh, not censor. Almost like censoring. What's that? Filters. Thank you. Oh my goodness, I was spacing there. There's like over 300 different filters that you can choose uh, on VidAngel, and then you can watch a movie, you can watch a TV show, and it'll do all of those filters, apply it to them, so that you can watch it without having to be. What? What's that? That sounds really cool. It's really amazing, actually. The technology has gotten really good. Um, and so I commend that to you. So almost always when I'm telling you I've watched something, I'm watching it, assume that I've watched it filtered. Okay. So my son and I, uh, Nehemiah, um, we watched, uh, Ridley Scott's Prometheus. I don't know if you all are familiar with the alien franchise, the science fiction, science fiction movies, uh, around aliens. And it's a really fascinating take on this very thing. So boggled the minds, intrigued the minds for centuries, right up to Ridley Scott giving us a movie on aliens that is seeking to understand where did we come from, uh, saw these beings as, called them the, enge- there's this great engineer. You know, we don't believe in a God, but we believe that there's an engineer. And why did the engineers make us? Uh, why did they create us? Why, why don't we know them? And so there's this longing and this search, which is just incredibly representative of the human longing, right? Even in a movie that's, I don't know, whatever it is, seven or eight Years old. So, this is not, this is a very relevant and very timely, these are very timely questions. And when confronted with the crushing weight of such questions, some worldviews give up. Postmodernism doesn't even attempt an answer. You're on your own to make sense of such questions. Even naturalism, that juggernaut seemingly of the scientific elite, doesn't attempt to directly answer such questions. For Darwinian evolution, it isn't. Mainly about origins, where did matter itself come from, but merely beginnings. How did mankind arise as one species among the other species? But the Bible is not bashful about such things. I would say the Bible isn't bashful really about anything. It's bold and confident in its assertions. So where would you turn in your Bibles to learn about our origins? Where would you turn? That seems like a good place. to Let's start at the, at the very beginning. A very good place to start. For those who are married, they've watched Sound of Music many times. That's right, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's reflect on these ten words for just a few moments. What do they tell us about creation? First... God created. So, one of the, one of the great ways, to like when you're studying a particular text, is just to emphasize a different syllable. So, read the sentence over and over again and just emphasize a different word as you read that sentence. So, the first thing we learn is God created. Creation owes itself not to chance or impersonal forces, but to God. And God created in the beginning. In other words, God created time. He's pre existent, eternal. Matter is not. Pre existent or eternal matter comes later. We'll get into that in a moment. God created the heavens and the earth. So all that we see, all that there is, all that we don't see exists, all that exists owes itself to God. And God is not embarrassed by this worldview, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? He doesn't bury this account deep within Israel's history because he's timid and apprehensive. You know, this might be hard for people to accept. I'll introduce it later, you know, kind of soften the edges a bit, start the story somewhere differently before I jump into, you know, that I created everything, kind of make it compatible for them, easy for them. God doesn't do that. He boldly and confidently leads with the doctrine of creation in his word. If you want answers to some of the most pressing questions in life, Look no further than the first words of the Bible. And there's an enormous amount of theology contained in these first ten words. For there is no Christianity without creation. There is no Christianity without creation. That the Bible begins with creation establishes who God is. And the entire God-world relationship. Setting up the story as we talked about, what are the four words that summarize the entire story of the Bible? Eric? Creation,
1: fall, restoration. Creation, fall, restoration.
0: You got three out of four. Rescue and restoration. Yes, well done, Eric. Good job, my brother. That's why I'm here, to make your brain hurt. <laughs> this helps establish the proper interp- interpretation. This, is The way that God is beginning by establishing this God-world relationship helps establish the proper interpretation and place of human beings in the world. In other words, in relationship to this God. It teaches the goodness of the world, and thus what eventually goes wrong with it. But the beginning of history also points to the end of history. So that's the four words that Eric just gave us, right? Creation, fall, what went wrong with the world, how God is going to fix what went wrong with his creation, resulting in a new creation. And this points us forward to our everlasting hope as Christians, which is hugely important, especially it seems to me in today's quite skeptical, cynical age. Right? We have a fair, many people have a fairly negative outlook on the future. And we, as Christians, are salt of the earth. We are light in the darkness. We step in and say, actually, the world is headed to an incredible place. God is going to do an amazing new work. We are very hopeful. We we should be. Anyway, very hopeful. And I think it's when we forget that, when we forget the trajectory of where the creation is going, that we start to get dreary and glumpy and grumpy. The word Genesis literally means beginnings. Moses penned these words, but he obviously wasn't there to observe and record all that happened. Like Revelation, which speaks to the end of all things, it had to be revealed to him. This raises the question about how Genesis 1 and 2 should be read. Is it mythical? Poetic? Scientific? I would argue that Genesis is not meant to be a scientific textbook. It's not merely giving cause and effect as if we live in merely a natural world governed by impersonal forces. Nor is it merely poetry. Moses speaks plainly and concretely. The main point of Genesis 1 and 2 is to give us a theology of creation, especially God's relationship with humanity. In order to understand that, we have to understand the time in which he was writing. Moses is writing, right? At the time that he's writing this, he's writing to Israelites who are at the time of their escape from Egypt. Egypt is a nation who's and people whose deities were rooted in and representative, representative of known creation at the time. Further, the Israelites were surrounded by a variety of peoples and cultures, each with their own stories of creation and how the world came to be, who brought it about, and what all of that meant for their lives. The Israelites were living in a time and among peoples with competing frameworks and explanations and stories. And what Moses did for them, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, And is doing for us who live in an age, right? Do we not live in an age and among a culture who is offering counter-narratives for how the world came to be, who we are, why we are, and what all that means for how we should live? It hasn't really changed all that much. And what Moses does is stand up and boldly and prophetically proclaim in the beginning, God. God. In other words, behold your God. Behold the God. And isn't this really when you, when you think about the Exodus account, isn't this exactly what God does by toppling in the plagues, what is he doing? He's toppling all the every one of those plagues is representative of a God that, is, that Egypt worshipped. He's showing his power, displaying his power over all the other gods and all the other systems and all the other Views. There is one true God. You can see this by, if you just look at the story, Moses declares God 32 times in just the first 26 verses of the story. That's what we call in Bible study a theme, a pattern, right? That's a pretty obvious indicator that the point of this account is not primarily creation but the creator. And by the time we get to the end of, this is John Golden Gay, uh, one of my favorite Hebrew scholars. By the time we get to the end of Genesis 1, we will know quite a bit more about God. And by the end of Genesis as a whole, we will know even more. Now, if you were to tell someone on the street that God created the heavens and the earth, what kind of discussions do you think would ensue? Who made God? Ah. What's that?
1: Who made God? I bet that's usually uh, where did God come from? It's kind of like the question that seems to come out a lot that we don't have answers for.
0: Have you ever talked with someone who you know not to believe in God? Has it ever come to a conversation about creation? And where we came from, and why we are, and who we are, and why it matters? Anybody?
1: Yeah. I have. I'm
0: from Wayne. How did that go? Not good.
1: <laughs> round and round. Right,
0: not good. Round and round.
2: It usually goes to aliens. What's that? It usually goes to discussion of aliens.
1: Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had
0: that happen. Yeah.
1: brought up, you know, he's, I think his heart position was in a, I think he heard a lot, and there was a lot of, like, whoa, man, type of, like, whoa, that's, you know, almost like interest, but, um, what's funny is it's like, <coughs> I feel like something inside of individuals that they're still blinded, but they still, I feel like when the truth is truly being spoken, um, something inside of them, something's happening, um, a lot of Where they're they're at because I've been the same person on
0: the opposite end. Yeah, the other side of the conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, You might get questions like, uh, I like I've got in the past. What about dinosaurs? Mm -hmm. What does the Bible say about dinosaurs? What about the age of the Earth? So how old is the Earth? (coughs) How do you address carbon fourteen dating and its results? the fossil record what do you think of evolution where does evolution fit in your thinking Um, and so often creation can be co-opted by these kinds of conversations and if we're not careful all of these competing voices will drown out the one voice that we need to hear god's voice i think often we can i think a mistake that we can make even inside of the church, sometimes I would say even in churches that I've been a part of, especially inside of the church, we get focused on actually the wrong questions. Um, We get focused on wrong emphases. And I think it's important to go back to the text and remind ourselves, what is Moses concerned with, right? like So this is all the way back to our very first semester on how to study the Bible. We are searching for the author's one intended meaning. Was Moses writing to explain and defend how God created or that God created? That's an important question, I think, when you come to the text. And I don't think he is talking so much about how God created, but that he created. And we have to be careful, even as we're having these conversations, because I don't think that we should ignore the questions or be afraid of the questions. And I'm grateful for people who who feel called to this particular part of say, apologetics or, or Christian study and, and answering questions like that, I certainly think there's a place for that, and we ought to have questions or answers to the questions that are asked of us. But I think we have to be very careful about falling into a trap of kind of putting God in the dock, as it were, on the witness stand and kind of drilling him with questions as if we're kind of the judge and saying, you have to answer my questions. Why, why didn't you give me this answer? And then kind of searching in between the lines of the text to see if we can figure that out. Often I'm reminded, is it, I was going to look this up earlier and then I forgot. Is it Jeremiah who talks about putting his hand over his mouth? It's one of the prophets. Job, Job. 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 yes. <laughs> I put my hand over my mouth. Yeah, Where were when, you yeah, yeah. yeah, you yeah exactly. Job. Um, so often I, I wonder if I don't think enough of like, wait a second, I'm just going to listen first. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen before I open my mouth. And, and isn't it Koheleth, the, the unknown author of Ecclesiastes, who I think is probably Solomon, who says, writes at one point Ecclesiastes, you know, Ecclesiastes, we, we should enter into the house of God, not speaking. Yes. Um, we should be silent. Um, so what does God have to say? If we, if we need to listen to God, what does he have to say about creation? I'd like to consider... Seven specific statements from the Bible related to the opening chapters of Genesis. And then with that foundation, next week we'll talk about some other matters that surround creation. All right, let's dive in. First biblical truth. God created the universe out of nothing. God created the universe out of nothing. He created the universe ex nihilo, if you've heard that Latin term before from theologians was just means out of nothing. In the beginning, God created. not when God began to create, but that he created without the use of any pre-existing materials. He didn't merely stumble across some cosmic Plato set and refashion or shape that which already was. He spoke and things came into existence. Listen to what the Word of God has to say about creating the universe out of nothing. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Or Romans 4, 17, which says that God, quote, is the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Or Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9. The heavens were made by the word of Yahweh, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. And because God created the entire universe out of nothing, there is no matter right, like matter, in the universe that is eternal. All that we see, all of it came into existence when God created it. In other words, there was a time when matter did not exist. Take Psalm 90, verse 2, for example. Before the mountains were, b- were born... Before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity. In other words, the only thing that is from eternity to eternity, is you are God. Amen. Creation ex nihilo strikes a blow to naturalism, which suggests that in the beginning, matter existed. And through a random, blind, purpos- purposeless series of events, we get the world that we see around us. But the Bible says, in the beginning, not matter created... But God created. So the first truth: God created the world out of nothing. Questions? Comments? Brian. Um,
2: so are you separating verse one in Genesis one from my like verse
0: two? Let verse three? yeah. Let's get into that next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good question, but I would prefer to address that next week.
2: Let me ask you another question. Sure. Which might help you with next week, by the way.
0: I I, I'm always eager for help. All right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so when you were attending the NT Wright School of Theology and studying divinity,
0: um, I didn't attend the NT Wright School of Theology, but <laughs> I do read. Yeah. I do read Tom. I, we're on a first name basis. I, I do read Tom. I <laughs>
2: um, probably when you took your of course in Old Testament, right, you came across documentary theory. Does that sound familiar?
0: It doesn't, actually.
2: Okay, so there's, I don't want to hog up the, the conversation, but there's doc, this thing called documentary theory which says, you know, while Moses, for example, wrote the first five books of the Bible, um, there were people that came after Moses and did editing.
0: Who came back in and added so, some of those yeah. details? So right? You, you have these that I've heard. Okay, of, so yes. you have
2: these scholars that have con- gone through and tried to identify different parts of the books of the Bible and when they may have actually been completed in their final form, in, in, in a form that, for example, the apostles would have known in the Septuagint. And so the only thing that I would say is that Genesis 1, for example, is considered part of the priestly part of the And there could be a reason why Genesis 1 is written in the way that it is because, um, like you commented earlier, there are comp- competing frameworks and ideologies. Right. And Genesis 1 could be written... By that you mean
0: the views of the, of the creation account. Of the <laughs> creation right. account. Right.
2: And the point being is that after, we, after returning from the exile, uh, the, the Hebrews or the Israelites could have been juxtaposing uh, Judaism or you know, the Yahweh creation compared to other deities, for example, Marduk, that would have been known in Babylon yeah. yeah. Samaria. And so consequently, you may not want to necessarily take everything that's in Genesis 1 as complete fact. It's more of a theological teaching to contrast with other teachings that were taking place in the ancient Near East.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm familiar with, with that kind of thinking. Yeah, um,
2: I'm not saying that it's necessarily true. But right, is, and and I true. and I'm
0: actually and, and I would actually say that I I don't think it necessarily even has to be an either or. I think that could be a both and. I think it can be both an accurate representation that's inspired by God within the context of those competing frameworks and views of how humanity and the world came to be, and that the way that Moses is telling the story, that the story can still be true, but the way and the style in which he's telling the story can be um, similar to those competing frameworks. I don't think those necessarily have to be in tension. Yeah. Uh, I think that can actually work together. It know, seems to me. I, the
2: reason why i bring this up is, I mean, you do kind of get an... Verses, but the the other thing I'd just say about this is you know, the Old Testament is constantly where God is a jealous God and He wants people to worship Him. And you know, to, like you just preached about on Sunday, there's the competition that um, Elijah has with the prophets of Baal, right. In Isaiah 45, you know, God's <coughs> got, uh, I think it's 45 44, where God. Saying, Bring out your wooden idols and let's see what they can do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And right. Uh, you know the, the first commandments of Exodus twenty, the Ten Commandments, is Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Yeah. And so God's either in a like a God competition to show that He's number one, or or He shows also how these gods that other people know, uh, or, or or maybe if they don't know necessarily, are actually Him. You know, like Paul talks. Paul talks about this later, I think Isaiah 9 uh, 6 is, is that you preached on is kind of doing the same thing, but so there's, there's this, he's either competing and showing that he is, Yahweh is the ultimate God, and, and I think that's probably, that, that's probably maybe what could be happening in Genesis 1 it's, it's a juxtaposition between the Yahweh of the Israelites
0: and other gods all the other gods in the stories, yeah. yeah that's helpful that is helpful for next week Number two, God created all things, both visible and invisible, both in the heavens and the earth. It's clearly, This is clearly asserted in Genesis 1.1, but not just there. Listen to the universal statements found in other places. John 1.3, All things were created through Jesus, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. John writes in Revelation 4.11, our Master and God. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Acts 4.24 speaks of God this way. When they heard this they raised their voices together to God and said Master, you are the one who made the heaven the earth and the sea and everything in them, which I think is is really helpful. It's just another way that we see, it's so encouraging the consistency and the unity of the Bible, the unity of the story. And when you see these things carried through. So what you see John and Luke doing is reflecting in the story of the people of God, but very purposely bringing out as they write the stories a reinterpretation and a reminder of what Moses wrote so long ago at the very beginning of the story. The inclusion of heaven and earth and everything in them indicates that God created the entire universe. The creation of the entire universe includes the creation of an unseen spiritual realm of existence. So I mainly take, and, and I think this is true, and, and maybe you would bring up places, I was, I was trying to think about this this week, if there's anywhere where I don't think this is true, and I couldn't, think of any place when when i think of when you hear the heavens and the earth um our god is in the heavens it, you know often maybe you grew up in a tradition that that like i grew up in and you know you kind of look up into the upper right hand corner of the room and you know that's i'm looking up at god i think the heavens and the earth is is representative of two realms mm-hmm. um so that there's this heavenly uh in other words in it and it can mean, right, because the word, Uranas can, can be interpreted as skies. So it can mean, you know, like I'm looking up into the skies or to the firmament. And, but it, I think it can also represent these two realms. So there's an unseen realm. So it's, it's not necessarily, I, I don't think it's quite accurate to say I'm going up to heaven or I'm going to go up to God, you know, when someone dies. I think they enter into a heavenly realm and they therefore enter into the presence of God. And, and the scriptures are very clear about this unseen spiritual realm of existence. Then, in addition to creating this visible, tangible, physical universe that we have around us, God also has created angels and other kinds of spiritual, heavenly realm beings that can also operate in this physical realm. He also created this place, this space, where his presence, presence is especially evident. Uh, And there are some really good books that that you can read. I just got a new series of books, and I've only skimmed them. I haven't read them in depth. I got them at the recommendation of a very close friend. It's a man named Michael Heisner, who I've heard a little bit about in the past. But he's got a a, a series of books. The first one, I think it's the first one, is called The Unseen Realm. And then he has a book on angels and a book on demons. And so if you want to read, I think, some really solid treatments of that unseen realm, even though I haven't read them in depth, I'm... Happy to commend that series to you. At the same time, you know, we want to go to the Bible and see that this is explicitly stated in both the Old and New Testaments. In the book of Nehemiah, Ezra prays. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You, Yahweh, are the only God. You created the heavenly realm, the highest heavens, with all their armies. In some translations will talk about the hosts of heaven. Literally, the word is Armies. The earth, you've created the earth and all that is on it. The seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and to all the army that are in the heavens worshiping you. Or maybe you could think of the story of um, Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah when he he prays that God would reveal uh, the armies of the heavenly hosts that are surrounding he and his servant. Or you can think of the um, the 85,000 Assyrians that were killed by one angel. One angel. This is why I say every time in the Bible you see angels, people wet themselves like because one angel could kill 85,000 Assyrians. Or you think about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed by the coming of angels and the fire that was sent down by God. The army in the heavens, uh, which the CSB... Render. So if you, if you look at Nehemiah 9.6, in your translation, you might see, um, and all the stars in the heavens worship you. But when I read that in the original, um, I really felt that army or hosts is the proper rendering here, referring to angels and other heavenly creatures, since Ezra says that they engage in the activity of worshiping God. And that same term... So when I looked at that same term in other places in the Christian Standard Bible, that same word, in Psalm 103, verse 21, Psalm 148, verse 2, they did render it as um, armies in the heavens. And so I I think that that is the proper rendering in Nehemiah 9.6 that is pointing out to us the reality of this spiritual realm. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul specifies this, Colossians 1.16. Everything was created by God in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So Paul is also affirming the creation of invisible heavenly beings. So God is the creator of all things, the physical as well as the spiritual. Number three, God created. Yes. Sorry. Questions. God created questions. Brian.
2: <laughs> um, so did God create demons? Yes. Did God create sin?
0: Huh. I'm not sure how to answer that specifically. What I would say, my answer to that would be sin does not originate in God. He's not the producer of sin. I think he
2: created man intending that sin would happen. Free will, free will, yeah. Free
0: will. Well, I, I don't believe. I, I would say I, I don't think the Bible teaches that there is such a thing as free will. So I, I think that. So I, I would disagree with that idea. I think. Mean, a key text for me would be Paul talking to Romans saying you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. So I, I don't think there is any freedom in the way that we conceive of freedom when we use, generally when the, when the church or Christians teach the idea of free will. Um, I, I don't think we're slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. I don't know of a clear way that Paul teaches that. So I would respectfully disagree with the idea of free will.
2: Did the did any of the angels sin? For example, when Peter talks about angels being in this intermediate place because of their sin.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they so, they so, fell. Yes.
2: So, so it's not just uh, something that man can do.
0: Correct. So. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I, I know that. Um, It's almost as if... So we talk about creation, fall, rescue, restoration. It's almost as if there's really kind of a pre-fall, isn't there? Because Satan, the Satan, enters into the garden as a fallen being who I think mainly has fallen in respect to pride. I, I want to rule. I want to be God. I want to be equal to God. And now I'm going to tempt you in that same regard. I'm going to pull you down with me um ultimately brother maybe you have a, a good answer i don't have a good answer for i think there's a mystery for me in understanding and and i think it depends on how you think about sin i mean there's even different thoughts about is is sin um i i would tend to believe after our study of romans uh, in this regard in romans 3 and i think it was in romans 6 that sin paul sees sin as almost this personal force that's operating in the world um i was just recently recently listening to a podcast of someone who made you know a fairly compelling argument of not seeing sin and or evil in that same way um and so i i, I can understand that i disagreed but um well, you what and
2: I, you and i had a previous conversation you know that because paul kinds of kind of sound i think it's a moment seven when he Mm-hmm. He, right he exactly actually, like anthropomorphizes sin like mm-hmm. it's actually like a person like 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 what you were talking about in the last semester where uh, the Holy Spirit and God the father and God the son are persons and I asked you what's how are you defining what a person <laughs> right. is right. and in some ways it sounds like sin could also be perhaps a person right but then you also get to first John 517 where it talks about the sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't lead so then the question, and this is probably something for a couple of weeks, we talk about Eve in the garden. And we, she, when we talk about sin. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it was it was that the, uh, the snake or whatever, or the satan, told her that she would not die.
0: Right.
2: So the question was, well, is she sinning or not sinning? But since she would die, then then she was sinning, I think,
0: is the logic. Yeah, is. well, and it... it and you would need to make sure that you're, what is your interpretation understanding of what John is on about yeah. in a sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't. And so what interpretation do I have there and how may that shed light on how I'm thinking about sin in that regard, in the garden, right? It's, so um, no, good questions. I, yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that I could say, I wish I had an answer for where, well, I, I where, that, answer. where I that comes I from, but I, I What I know is the idea of sin, it's, you know, it's like when we, I think often when we're talking about why is there evil in the world, where does it come from, how does that operate in relationship to God, his sovereignty, um, I mainly, how I understand sin is mainly in how I'm understanding who God is and what I know, like, so I want to make sure that I'm building my arguments on what are the things that I can clearly know and understand in the Bible. And then when I want to understand the clear things most importantly and not spend all my time trying to first focus and understand what are the things that are unclear and trying, like, how do I figure those out? Because I think that helps me then come to the unclear things. And then I can say, well, I know know there is no shadow or turning in God. I, I know that he's pure and holy and he's undefiled and, like, all these things. And so I know that sin can't find its birth or its source in him. I also know that he's sovereign over all things. I don't feel like I have to defend God. Um, I, I don't I don't like to use language like God allows things to happen because I don't I think that robs him of his control and of his power and of his sovereignty. I think God determines all things. and and then when I back up into that, that's where I get, it gets hard of like, okay, there's this, there's this sin in the world. And we're, gonna, we're actually going to talk about this a little bit on Sunday and in relationship to Romans 11 when Paul says, I'm, I'm revealing, towards the end of the argument, I'm revealing a mystery to you. <laughs> and then he goes in 33 to 36, and he essentially does what we said. He steps back and he says, "Oh, the majesty and greatness, of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways mm-hmm. and, and I think that's Paul both modeling bo- both honestly believing and modeling for us um, because it's a very complex argument in one sense and it's and it's also very simple actually I think in another sense Romans 11 um, understanding how could he how could he take Israelites harden them so that we could be saved and then use that salvation to then come back and cause them to want to emulate following us in faith. Why would he do that? That seems so complex and so much more difficult than just saying, just why don't everybody be saved? <laughs> God, That I don't like your story. You, you could say that. And, and why does he say at the very end of that argument, and so therefore God Imprisoned everybody in disobedience, so that he might show mercy to all. Well, why did you do it that way? And I just have to, I just have to stand on Paul and go. His ways are inscrutable. His, right. his, his judgments are beyond finding out. Which I don't me- think means s- stop trying to figure them out. Right. I don't think it means that. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have written Romans. Um, so I, that's just, that's just to kind of give you guys some some thought about how I come at studying the Bible and creating a, we all, right? I've said this to you before. We have to create our, our own, in some sense, our own theology. We have to own what is, your, what is your system of understanding God. You can't just depend on someone else for that. You, you need to have that understanding in you. So you're coming to term with these things. And, and therefore you can explain that to others who are asking you good questions like brian is asking um, i might, <laughs> just, I, I might um, say that the
2: questions that, or some things that you're talking about with goes to romans 11 right now um heiser actually the unseen realm i think would explain a lot of that um because one of the things that in almost every church i've been to um you don't have anybody that talks about demons No, <laughs> yeah, because you probably remember the a ago, I asked you, were Adam and Eve set up in the garden? Because I think what you were talking about earlier with Satan being able to sneak into the garden, were you referring to, um, it's an Ezekiel, um, um, an Ezekiel was going to go talk to the king of Tyre, and he said, you were in the garden, you were a cherubim, the reference I, I wasn't thinking explicitly of that. Oh, okay. But because there is that, That's helpful. There, there is that scripture in, in Ezekiel where it talks about how Satan, or whatever whatever his name should be, was in the garden, and he was a cherubim, and cherubims were there to guard, and and so you could maybe assume that he was there to actually guard the, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and instead
0: turned like maybe turned. that's
2: when he fell. And so. Well, I, I, interesting, I, 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 haven't, I, I mean, haven't heard that before that Ezekiel verse actually says that he fell before it, well it gives you the idea that he fell before mm-hmm. yeah. um, anyway uh, Heiser talks a lot about all this stuff it's I need to read that in more
0: detail I need to read that book in more detail Yeah. God created time physics tells us that time is a property resulting from the existence of matter the succession of moments one after another which is dependent on the existence of a material substance in order to measure them don't ask me to fully explain that. I'm not a physicist. <laughs> Accordingly, time exists when matter exists. But God is not matter. God, in fact, created matter. And before that, God was simply existing. And since there was no matter and because God does not change, time had no existence and therefore no meaning and no relation to him, which is why he can say in verse 1, in the beginning, he literally creates the beginning before he creates anything else, Lord. which is cool. Amen. <laughs> so what does this mean? Well, it means probably among many things that you might come up with on your own that God is not bound by time like human beings are bound by time. We've talked about this before here. God's existence is independent of time. Not only did he create the reality in which we live, not only did he create you and me, he actually created the space-time continuum that we exist in, which I was thinking about this the other day. I'm trying to remember. I was listening to something and it spurred this line of thinking like this is important these little bits are actually really important because it helps us make sure that we don't that we don't project our limitations on this god that we're trying to understand so there's a sense in which god doesn't like he can operate in aspects of past present future but for god it's likely that there's just the, there's, it's all just a now. It's just a now. Like a, he understands it, all, this whole thing as just this now. He, he's not kind of, like we're kind of trapped on the timeline, right? And he's not. Which I think has a number of glorious implications, if you thought about that for a bit. Recall that Psalm 90 verse two, which I quoted to you already says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Or recall Revelation one which reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says Yahweh God, the one who is, who was, who is to come. That's kind of that, I just, now, I'm, just, I'm the Almighty. Yeah. Or how about Psalm 102? He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. I say, my God, do not take me in the middle of my life. Your years continue through all generations. Long ago, you established the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. (coughs) All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years will never end. And your servants' children will dwell securely, and their offspring will be established before you. See, the reason I'm giving you these texts, oh, I hope you see this, brothers and sisters, is is you're seeing the writers of the scriptures work out and apply the reality that God is beyond time. It it means something. It's not just some, like, remember what we said in the very beginning of, of this course, that systematic theology is by definition practical, that it's wanting you to understand and know who God is so that has has a transformative effect on your life and the way that you're living, that's what you're seeing by this writer of the psalm. He's seeing this magnificent reality of who God is and he's working out, okay, what does that mean to me right now in my life? This idea that you're beyond time, that your years don't end, that you that you take up all of this like a garment. That's who you are he is God 102 that you were Psalm 102 talking. yeah verses uh, I'm sorry I didn't tell you but verses 23 to 28 oh, Okay. and I'm always and for those who might be I'm always reading Christian Standard Bible so if you're a different translation that's why it might sound different than, than yours these verses are showing us that God is eternal and therefore in contrast it shows us that everything else is not we're immortal we're immortal but we're not eternal right so you once coming into existence you will never end you're never going to end cs lewis says if if we could see this isn't a direct quotation but my best remembrance if we could see each other as the beings that we truly are we would either shrink back in horror or fall down in worship there you go say that again please if if we could see each other as the beings that we truly are, which, which I would argue is what is happening in the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. A bit of the humanity of Jesus is being pulled aside like a veil. And in, in that moment, right, because he had set his glory, Paul tells us in Philippians, he had set his glory aside. That was part of the incarnation. I think he's taking that, in you're seeing Jesus. The disciples, those three, saw him for who he truly was, and what did they do? They fell down in worship. Peter's like, we should just not leave from here. We should just make some tents right now, which is interesting because what is he doing? He's seeing him as God. I think he's thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles and creating a tabernacle. and like, so you're, like you're God! Oh my word, you're God! If we could see each other as the beings that we truly are, we would either shrink back in horror because we'd be terrified, right? we'd be scared, yeah. like when you see an angel, yeah. or we would fall down and worship and one day we're gonna see each other like we As a John writes, right? One day we will see him and each other as he truly is. Because we'll be glorified. We'll have eyes that are glorified. Bodies the way they were supposed to be. And we'll see those bodies out of eyes the way they were supposed to yeah, It's going to be amazing. Amen. This all strikes a blow to our Darwinian friends who look for a time-space answer to the problem of the beginnings. But God has no beginning and so has no time-space limitations. So, that they are, one could argue, in a very real sense, looking in the wrong place for their answer. God not only created the universe, He created the time space continuum that the universe is found in. That's the point. Number four, God created by His Word. What's one of the common refrains that you see over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 3? And, yeah. and God. Ten times in the Genesis account, we find those words, and God said, The point is unmistakable. God calls things into existence by his word. God literally spoke the universe into existence by his word and created something where there was nothing before. God spoke, and it was done. God's word is necessary for salvation, as we learned in our first class, but it's also the means to life as we know it. And so we see that God's word brings life both spiritually and physically. Hebrews eleven three states that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Consider for a moment the power of God's word. The picture of God in creation is not of a God like maybe a carpenter or a construction worker, sweating and toiling and laboring for millennia to create everything that we see. He merely speaks, and it is so. And actually, he didn't even have to speak, right? He wouldn't even have had to speak. It may take us decades to create mere buildings that make cities. But in a word, in a nanosecond, God speaks galaxies into existence. There is unbridled power when God chooses to speak. We speak, and our words just kind of trail off into the air, how many mornings do my words of instruction pass right from one ear out the other of my son or how often do my wife's words pass right in one ear and out the other without any change but not so with God. His word is effectual it, it creates it it's transformative it's why we can even say this word is This written word calls itself a living word. There's power, even in the recording of his words. The world doesn't just turn at God's command. The world literally hangs on God's word. You you uphold the world by the word of your power, Paul writes in Colossians. I've said this to you so many times, but I, I say it because I love it god is constantly telling the story if he were to stop talking we would cease to exist he is constantly that i don't want you to like kind of vault yourself to some over important status but at the same time god is telling my Mm -hmm. story god is telling your stories he said kevin gary like he's telling your stories so that it happens he cares that much God's word is powerful. It creates, and it's perfect. His word is perfect. It creates exactly what he intended it to create. Have your words ever been confused by another person? <laughs> Have they ever had effects that you didn't intend? <laughs> so often. That's not, that's not God. One of my favorite authors is uh, actually Danny Potter, and she wrote on on her website, um, this is a few months back, she wrote The Marvel of Creation. I, w- I want to read this for you. It's so good. Danny's so good with words. Pondering the marvels of the creation story afresh today. When we think about God creating the heavens and the earth, it's easy to picture a white-haired sage in a robe sitting down at a drafting table to plan the internal workings of a star like some empyrean architect, or opening a thick, tattered, leather-bound journal and sketching out a myriad of species of flora and fauna. But this is to humanize God, to see him in our own image rather than the omnipotent, omniscient, totally and completely other being that he is. Could God have done those things just for the fun of it? Sure, he's God. Did he need to do those things? Absolutely not. He's God. When human beings create, we have to work things out. Painters start with rough sketches. Architects begin with blueprints. Musicians craft lyrics and chord sequences. Chefs experiment. Knitters use patterns. Toddlers abandon their boring sheets of paper in favor of their preferred canvas, the kitchen wall. I'll bring it closer to home. Writers, as yes, she's a writer, may plan a story with outlines or notes in a notebook, they, or they may just have an idea in their head and go with it. To which she says, wait, where did the idea come from to begin with? But they never know every word, unfortunately, she says. They may know the beginning and the ending even, but the bits in the middle need some teasing out. There's research and brainstorming and thesauruses involved. Sometimes the process chugs right along. Other times it comes to a halt and you wait and wait and wait for fresh inspiration. But not God. Scripture tells us when God created the sun and the moon and the stars, he had only to speak a word and they sprang into being. Just like that. No trial and error. No writer's block. No rough draft. Perfection right from the very start. This is what it is to be an omnipotent, all-powerful creator. And when God envisioned giraffes and honeybees and oaks and the water molecule, he didn't have to experiment to get it just right. He didn't need to discover the best way for birds to learn how to fly, although getting the boot from an S 50 feet high off the ground seemed a tad risky. He didn't have to explore the various combinations of affectionate and indifferent in order to create the perfect blend of cuddly frustration that is the house cat. God doesn't learn. He just knows. This is what it is to be an omniscient, all-knowing creator. God is infinite. Therefore, his knowledge is infinite. The whole of creation, from atoms to anglerfish to the Andromeda galaxy, was there in his mind and has always been. He spoke and it was. Except maybe centipedes, those things are straight from hell.
1: (laughs) Did Danny write that? Which so let
0: <laughs> let, let me uh, let me critique Danny for a second, it, because we we have this we had this discussion the other night in our house, Nehemiah and I arguing with my wife Susan, because susan I hear a scream in the kitchen what what is? What what? What's your, so I holler, because you know, I'm sure she's fine. I don't run. Just like I'm sitting, I'm I'm reading. Why are you screaming? There's a spider! And it's huge! To which me means it's probably the size of the head of a pin. But it was actually pretty big. It was about that big. It was a, it was a big spider, very hairy, woolly. I don't know what kind of spider it was. To which she to said, you know, I hate spiders, they're awful, we ought to kill them all. Now, I understand the sentiment, but let me press on it for a second. God speaks spiders into existence. And I think this is like how I try to gently exhort all the Salidans that I've come to know this past year who bitch and moan about the wind. And I, And I think... Who are you complaining against? Honestly, God creates wind, and he has a reason. That's part of his story. God created centipedes and spiders and snakes and whatever quiggly, squiggly thing you don't like. For me, why cats? I hate cats. I just don't think they should exist. I wrote a speech when I was a senior in high school in speech class, 101 things to do with a dead cat. They They just... I don't like cats. <laughs> but I'm convicted because God made cats. They're part of a story. He's te- Who am I to point at characters in his story and say I don't like your character? There's a reason that you've put characters in the story.
1: Amen. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, Danny, I like I, about the wind. I can <laughs> I can relate. I I'm not a big fan of I centipedes, especially, especially those huge orange ones with, like, the big legs that, like... Mm. I think maybe God
1: created them, and they did something else before the fall. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, I... Listen, I'm... I'm. There's a degree to which I'm with you. Like, I, I have lots of questions for God. Like, what is the point of mosquitoes? Like, why, why? 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 They just make me itch. Why ticks? Why this thing that sucks my blood? I don't... Why? I... No. Every time
1: I think about that stuff, I just am very thankful because I am who I am and I get to have the knowledge. And But all creation still cries out. Right. So, I don't know.
0: <laughs> she, in this, I'll just end in this last little bit. How incomprehensibly awesome to realize that the world in which we live, the grass on the ground, the air in our lungs, the very molecules of matter itself were crafted and are held together even now by words, divine words. Then she goes on to reflect, which which we could further. It's interesting that the only thing that God did not create, what is the only thing that God did not create merely by speaking? Man. Man. It says he formed him out of the dust of the ground. He became involved in a way that he hadn't with the rest of creation. Number five, creation is a triune act. Genesis 1, 26 to seven reveals that the Creator God is triune. I will say that you know there are some there there are those who would argue that we don't see the Trinity in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. I, I think it is. I think the Trinity is present there. Um, God said, "Let us let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky." The livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. We see this as God, the Father, Psalm 19.1, 1 heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. But we see that the Son was also involved in specifically in this work, John 1, 3. All things were created through Jesus, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. Paul agrees with John, for everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible, invisible, or the thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Hebrews 1, 2. In, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, and God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. God the Holy Spirit created. He's generally pictured as completing, filling, and giving life to God's creation. Genesis 1 hints at the preserving and sustaining function of the Spirit when it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surfaces of the waters, involved in what God would then do. Or Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Psalm 104.30, the psalmist writes concerning the great variety of creatures on the earth and in the sea, saying, when you send your ruach, your your spirit, your breath, they are created, and you renew the surface of the ground. In John 6, we see Jesus saying in verse 63, the spirit is the one who gives life. Mm -hmm. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. So the Father creates, the Son creates, the Holy Spirit creates, bringing new life. Number six. The universe that God created was what? Very good. very good. What's the constant refrain of Genesis 1? God saw that what he had done was good. Genesis 1, 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. And at the end of the six days of creation, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. God delighted in the creation that he had made just as he had purposed to do. He was happy about that. Though sin has marred this material world, even to the point that the creation groans, right? We heard that in Romans 8, mm-hmm. The material world is still good. It's still good in God's sight and therefore should be seen as good by us as well. All of it. All of it. This knowledge will free us from a false asceticism. That is the belief that the use and enjoyment of God's material world and all that is in it is wrong. It's somehow wrong to enjoy this material world that he has given to us. And listen to how the Apostle Paul teaches about this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. to Now the Spirit explicitly says, the Spirit does, so I'm hearing this from the Spirit, that in later times mm-hmm. some will depart from the faith. So this is a departure. They will pay attention to deceitful <coughs> spirits. And the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They will forbid marriage. They will demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude. Chicken noodle soup and cheddar biscuits and the world's greatest oatmeal chocolate chip cookies that my wife made with shaved Giardelli dark chocolate... Put in oatmeal and sugar and butter and flour and eggs and pecans and chocolate chips and put them in little balls on a, what do you call the pans that you put in the baking sheet pans? Not all of the balls survived making it into the oven, I'm going to say, and testify to. Because cookie dough is to be received with gratitude from God. By those who know and believe the truth. Mm-hmm. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if so this is the condition, if it is received with thanksgiving, yeah. since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Every good and perfect gift is from above. One author, one author put it like this. Whereas God could have created air filtration machines, and he instead chose to create trees. Whereas God could have chosen to cast creation in black and white, he instead chose to paint from a vast palette of colors. So, we could take from that, he gives both water and wine. And actually, because he's God, he turned water into wine. And think about this. (laughs) This hit me the other day. Jesus turns water into wine into barrels, right? There's this this water in these barrels. He turns it into wine. God has never stopped turning water into wine. What are grapes? Mm -hmm. They're water Mm -hmm. brought into a plant. The sun hits it. It turns into a grape. It ferments and becomes what? he's still turning water into wine (laughs) for us to enjoy in moderation. (laughs) Do not be drunk with wine. Be drunk with the Spirit. So God isn't approving of gluttony. God isn't approving of a lack of self-control. Because that's what some people want to argue to have you not eat certain foods or whatever. No, just act with moderation like God wants you to. God gives water and wine. He gives bread and cheese. And then we put them together with all kinds of... Have you ever seen Ratatouille? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that just a great movie? And he's like, I'm going to take this thing. I'm going to take this thing. And I put them together and oh, I get this flavor. And then I add this other thing. Oh, and I get another flavor. That's why I'm amazed at Suzette and Susan and all you people who know how to cook and all I know how to do is make an egg. Like it just It's amazing. All these things that come together. God is not stingy. He's not some Scrooge. He's not tight-fisted. Creation teaches us He's a wonderfully good God who's open-handed. He is pro-pleasure. He is pro-joy. His good gifts are for our gratification so that we might give Him praise and thanks. Not rightly understanding this kind of joy-filled life of enjoying God and His gifts Actually, robs God of the glory that is due His name. When you don't enjoy an amazing piece of pumpkin pie with vanilla ice cream, if you're not thinking about the glory of God and your delight in that, you're robbing Him of praise. You should be thinking, right? What does Paul say? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, give glory to God. Thank you, God, for a tongue that has all these little teeny bumps on it, that taste different tastes, and thank you for different spices. And my tongue, right? Your tongue is made in such a way that certain parts of your tongue taste sweetness, certain parts of your tongue taste saltiness, and that's amazing! God thought about that, so that you could delight in eating. He could have just made, have y'all seen The Matrix, right? And they're just eating that goo? It's just the goo over, and it's nutritional. It gives them all the fuel that they need. God doesn't want you to just eat goo. God created chefs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or malted <multi-means. laughs> That's why. That's why. There's, that's why God created brown sugar. Man, right? <laughs> put the brown sugar on there. Keep it on. <laughs> so let's not be ascetics. Let's enjoy His creation. And finally, therefore, a connected point. Number seven: God created the universe to show his glory. Both mankind and the universe rec- were created for the glory of God. Psalm 19 states, the heavens declare. They're declaring something. What are they declaring? The glory of God. And the expanse proclaims what? The work of his hands. This is what Paul was on about in Romans one, right? We, we are without excuse. We, we look around and we see and we, it's declaring, it's declaring, it's pointing. Day after day, they pour out speech. They're talking <laughs> night after night. They communicate knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it hit me just looking at that passage this week. Take 60 minutes. That's probably intimidating. Take 10. Take 10 minutes and think about Psalm 19, 1 and 2 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at some point in the rest of this week. Just think about Psalm 19, one and two. What does it mean that night after night... When, okay, so when you, when you go home tonight... Oh, so what I love about living in Salida. There, there's no light that's pressing out my view of the expanse. So when I walk from our garage, our disconnected garage, into our home, every single time I do this. Because I just can't help myself. Mm-hmm. And I just look up. And night after night... There's a knowledge being communicated to me. Just think about that. What, what does that mean? The song of the living creatures in Revelation 4, 9-11, to shows that God's creation is to give praise and glory to its creator, of which we are a part. The creatures sing. They sing. Verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne. They're right there. They're, they're singing. We know from Isaiah that, that they're, they're flying around with... Two wings over their eyes and, and, and two wings that are flying and two wings over their feet, right? Yep. And and they're singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when they do that, to the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and they worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. (coughs) We, We reflected on this a moment. And again, I don't want us, do not hear me chiding you. Hear me inviting all of us into an increasing knowledge of the glory of who God is by focusing on these seven things about the glory and the power of this creator God that should cause our corporate gathered worship on a Sunday morning to deepen. And to the degree at which our worship stays at a given level of potential shallowness, it's because we're not meditating enough on the nature and glory of God. Should there not be times, I pray for a kind of revival that that's like when, when God's presence came into the temple and everybody just fell to the ground. Yeah. Like, I wanna see God like that. And not just me, like I want, I want us, I want us to see God like that. Would that be remarkable on a Sunday morning that, that we just all get such a vision of him that we just, like we can't help but fall to our knees as we're singing. May God do it. We are designed, created even, to glorify God for his creation. That's why God can say in Isaiah 43, 6-7, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. He says further, I will not give my glory to another. He is jealous for his glory. Glory. All of this, including us, exists so that we can bring glory to his name, which Lewis, when, when he was confronted with this, with the idea that God creates to get himself glory and worship, he said, I, I for so long had this problem because God seemed to me to be some old prattering woman who was waiting for, for compliments to be given her. <laughs> what kind of God is this that needs but when he was converted, he reflects later, and this is a this is a paraphrase, it's just again, it's my recollection and, and somewhat my own understanding. The most godly thing for God to do is to demand worship of God. To not demand worship of God, the supreme being in the universe would be Ungodlike. We would expect nothing less of a supreme being than to demand worship and fealty and loyalty and allegiance. Bulk you Yes, not only that, but God
1: and God does not only love, but he is love. And you cannot continue. Yeah. So we have to come to
0: love by It's important to understand that God did not need to create to bring himself glory. So that's important. He created to bring himself glory, but he doesn't need anything else in reality to bring himself glory. He is by himself already infinitely glorious. God desired to create the universe to demonstrate his excellence. He created it to take delight in his creation and creating powers. And so God in this way... One thing we could say, I think, is he created the universe to show off his glory. So. I think
1: we're being one up. We got worship and glory right now.
0: Yeah, we are. <laughs> so, next, next week, we will talk about views of creation. Uh, we'll at least talk about theistic evolution, mm-hmm. the gap theory, mm-hmm. the day age view, mm-hmm. the literary framework view, and young earth creationism. And historic creationism. Those are the six, six views that I intend for us to spend some time talking about. All right, I'll be up here. If anybody has any questions that they didn't get to ask that they'd like to ask, um, who can? Tom, can you speak nice and loudly and close us in prayer? <laughs> We thank you for who you are and how you have shown yourself, yourself to each one. And may we follow upon our faith, and may we give you what you are truly deserving, and that is worth. For you are worthy, worthy, worthy. We thank you for that.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being here for your attentiveness. I look forward to seeing you next week.